then I started bringing into questioning all of these these things that I've had long wrestled with, you know, identity, as you say, uh, through through Mexican boxing, things like assimilation, like class, machismo is a huge thing. And just just trying to delve into it and trying to trying to focus on what it means to be Mexican through an entirely working class sport such as boxing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Roberto Jose Andrade Franco. Um, This is a really, really special writer. He worked in construction for over a decade and then went back to college where he just got his PhD from Southern Methodist University. He's written for Deadspin, ESPN, Texas Monthly, D Magazine, Bleacher Report, and The Border is what this guy writes about. And this guy gets at the humanity and inhumanity of what's taking place at the the U.S.-Mexican border. And you get such a sense of compassion, intelligence, wisdom, policy, and the collateral damage of of when we hear about statistics or we hear about talking points. Um, He puts faces on these issues better than almost anybody working right now in sports writing. And I've been a huge fan of Roberto's for a long time. I, I just love what he's able to, to accomplish with, with such succinctness and economy. So I, I was thrilled to talk to him about his work and career, and uh, I can't wait to see where he goes. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Roberto Jose Andre Franco. You have one of the most interesting biographies of anybody I know in boxing. So why don't we just jump into that to start off with? You have this background as a construction worker for 10 years. Right. Well, and before that, you're born in, I mean, you mentioned to me that identity is kind of the big theme of your work. So like, why don't we start off? Like, where were you born? And let's walk through to that construction work to college on your way to this Ph.D., for Mexican identity through the prism of boxing. Can we do that? That's that's great. Okay. Born in Chicago, 1980. My, my parents are from Juarez, right across the border from El Paso, uh, El Paso, Texas. Uh, and uh, my mother was a uh, undocumented, uh, she was undocumented. So she crossed over to El Paso, uh, El Paso from there flew to Chicago where my dad was at the time working as a, as a census counter actually or something along those lines something to do with the census and uh, they had family out there it's one of those things where uh, you know somebody from the from the neighborhood from the barrio ended up in in Chicago so they start kind of pulling people saying hey uh, you get out here you have a place to stay you have a place to work a place to to basically a place to live while you get on your feet. Uh, and that's what happened. I, and we ended up there. Uh, I was eight months old when they finally uh, moved back to Juarez. And it wasn't until, uh, it must've been like six or seven that my father went back into the military because he had uh, gotten into the military before I was born in the US Army and then uh, got out. That uh, my little brother was born 
and uh, they couldn't make ends meet how uh, living. So I uh, went back into the army, lived in Germany, lived in Colorado Springs. Uh, before he got out, we ended up, I, and, and he got out eventually, and I ended up back back home in El Paso, which is, as I mentioned, right across the border from, from Juarez. I still have a lot of family in Juarez, uh, a lot of family in El Paso. Uh, so yeah, I graduated high school, 98. And it was just one of those things where uh, I didn't know what to do with my life. You know, we'd have counselors come and talk to us and and it, it just felt like to me that everybody kind of had their plan, their life planned out. People had their goals, their ambitions. They knew what they were going to college for. And, and even though I was a pretty good student, I just didn't, uh, I had no direction, I guess, so far as that was concerned. I mean, I wasn't a bad kid or anything. Uh, I wanted to play football, actually. And once that didn't happen, I was just kind of, kind of just lost in a way, you know, with, with no real direction. Uh, I went to the orientation for El Paso Community College. I was, I graduated, I was 17. And uh, I just decided I didn't want to go to college just because it, it just didn't make sense. I, I just felt like I was going to waste my time there. And, and uh, I mean, I don't come from a very uh, educated family. So it wasn't, I mean, all my cousins, my father, everybody was just kind of like this, you know, working construction, working. My my father, once he got out of the military, or uh, before he got into the military, he was a he was a mechanic in Segundo Water in El Paso. Mm. So you know, it's just kind of uh, we weren't we. It wasn't that big of a deal for me. At least I didn't think so. Maybe my I, I think it was more for my mother and father, kind of to realize that that perhaps we sacrificed so much, and you know fucking kid wants to be a construction worker it's not necessarily a good uh it didn't go over well initially but i think once again because we're just kind of surrounded by this it was just kind of like well i guess it's better than all the other options you know at least he's not getting in trouble at least he's not doing that uh this that or the other causing trouble so i ended up uh in phoenix uh i was 17 lived out there with my cousins for about three years, I was working construction. That's where I started working uh, as an electrician initially. Then uh, eventually moved back to El Paso. Kept working as an electrician and I worked some more as a highway construction worker. That was my last job. Like I said, I was 28 and I think I reached a point where I kind of felt it was this kind of moment where it was like, all right, I'm either gonna work construction for the next you know, 40, 30, 40 years or I'm, I'm, this is, I'm kind of young enough right now. I'm in my late 20s to actually try to do something else in my life. Would you then have been the first college-educated person in your family, your immediate family? Actually, in my immediate family, yes. But in, in my uh, extended family, I had, a, I had a cousin in Chicago who actually went to Wisconsin. Uh, mm -hmm. And he graduated, which it wasn't until later that I actually appreciated what, what a good school that was, a great school. And what sure. a... Uh, what an accomplishment that was. But, you know, that was family in Chicago that we saw, you know, once every once every four years, there's a funeral kind of thing where people would show up. Uh, so it wasn't, I didn't see it around me every day. I, I do remember I was, he's older than me. So I do remember I was young enough that he would write letters to uh, 
to me and to my mother and my grandmother. Uh, and he, I just remember reading them and him kind of talking about how difficult it was, right, to be away from from family and to be in this weird place where, you know, you're essentially surrounded by this entirely different demographic and class of people that you're with and how difficult it was for him. And I remember my my grandmother really crying over that. Uh, but I had other family, other cousins who who actually did go to, to, to UTEP or El Paso Community College. UTEP is University of Texas at El Paso. But they never graduated. One, uh, one cousin, the way he made it seem was more like a, almost like you would get free money to go to college until you kind of flunked out, which was the Pell Grant. Uh, so I kind of, I kind of, that was just kind of like what I was surrounded by. You know, there's this kind of like people would go to college a semester or two, they'll eventually stop going. And then you eventually start working construction. You start working some other place. I guess at that point, uh, once it became pretty clear that I wasn't going to, to college as, as my parents hoped, my father would kind of hope that I would at least get a job with the city. That was like the best case scenario at that point, you know, a, a place where it would be steady work where you'd have, uh, have benefits, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, for a while, I kind of thought about going into the military like my father, but uh, yeah, that, that didn't really uh, appeal to me. Also, uh, I spoke to uh, one of the recruiters and, you know, when you're speaking to recruiters, they promise you all these things. I told them how I want to play football. They're like, hey, we have a football team here, this and that. And uh, I think had it not been for my father and him knowing, you know, these kind of like recruiting tricks, and I probably would have ended up in the in the army someplace, but instead I uh, I would tell my dad, and he'd be like, "Yeah, that's that's bullshit. They're not going to do that for you, right?" Uh, well, so go ahead. It, and it just seems like I wonder how much of this stereotypical army brat background, where you're moving around all the time. I mean, I have an uncle; he's 83 now, and he mentioned to me once that when he was in high school, because my grandfather was a logger. And it was hard to find work during the Depression, so he was kicked all over the, the province in British Columbia. And my uncle went to, I think, 35 different high schools during that four-year period for him. Right. Do you think that that sense of moving into different neighborhoods, different demographics, exposure to different classes, races, I, I mean, all of this seems omnipresent in your articles. How much do you think that this background informs your perspective in your work and the sort of subjects that you choose? I, I think that's that's what informs it. That's where it comes from. And 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 just, you know, you grow up as as not knowing kind of how long you're gonna have a friend, essentially, right? When when you show up there and sometimes you make friends and then from one week to the next, all of a sudden they move away or you move away, or sometimes even within the same city that you're living in, depending on, on, on military housing, on whether you're living off base or on base, you could, I mean, there was, there's one school year, I think that I went to like four different schools just because we would move around. So I think, you know, that, that obviously that's going to end up, uh, shaping how you see, how you interact really. You know, you become a little, at least in my experience, you become a little bit more guarded. You, you, you're much more uh, cautious of who, you know, essentially who you, who you becomes friends with, right? Uh, 
and just going into these these new places all these times and then essentially especially at, at a certain age it's almost like you're bound to uh get in some type of altercation the first few weeks uh it might not be physical but you know it's always uncomfortable to be the new kid in school especially when you show up mid-semester right and everybody's just kind of have their friends already. They they know each other from other places. In the military, that was much more uh, expected. So you kind of share that type of outsider status, I guess, with everybody because everybody's going through it. But once I went to high school in El Paso, uh, and all these kids have maybe not all of them, but a good major, a good percentage of them have known each other since kindergarten. Uh, I think that was that was when I started to really to really notice it, right? And also, obviously, you're a, you're a teenager, so you're, you're experiencing other things. And I think that's that's really when I started to notice, you know, this kind of like an outsider type of vibe and kind of trying to figure out where I fit in within this world that I consider my home in El Paso. And then I come back and then it's kind of like, you're, you almost feel like a stranger here, you know? And I think, that that very much informs the the things that I write, the things that I'm interested. Just trying to figure out place, you know, individual place in the world. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I'm I'm working on a profile right now about a kid who grew up in Mexico City with an immensely privileged background. He he himself was not of Mexican descent, but endlessly in his life after that the border figures prominently throughout his story he's always at border towns he's smuggling cars across texas into mexico he's in ireland writing the book that that won him the booker prize where he's right at the border of northern ireland and ireland and there's this sense of of like ambos mundos uh, of just perpetually in a kind of blur between two worlds that i uh, I mean, for me too, like I've been in New York for 10 years and yet I don't know what it means exactly to, to be a New Yorker because most of the people here are not from here. It's an right. odd construct, this thing about identity in some ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned that you don't know what it means to be a New Yorker now that I'm, now that I'm, uh, I guess I'm an academic, even though I don't feel like one. Yeah. I, that kind of goes to what you're saying that I guess you're technically a New Yorker, even though you don't know what that means. Uh, you know, I'm around a different type of people now. I'm around different class of people, around people who who I really many times feel like I have nothing in common with. And yet the people that I feel I do have something in common with, you know, I'm not exactly like them. I might... Uh, I might feel like I have more in common with the construction worker now, but you know, I'm not sure how long I could last if I actually went back to working construction, right? And not just not just physically, but also it, you know, you kind of you kind of grow out of 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 a certain phase and into a new one, and you you end up in this, you know, kind of like this odd place where you're not from here, you're not from there, and you're just kind of uh, trying to figure out where you're at. Well, and I, I wonder also, like, it took me a long time to recognize that a big aspect of exploring Cuba was exploring, you know, a people that every family is divided and split as a result of the revolution. It's the easiest way to distill what that revolution meant is a broken family. 
My father worked in child protection, dealing with broken families. My mother was part of a broken family as a refugee who left a communist state to come to Canada where she couldn't fit in. She didn't speak the language for a few years, dropped out of high school, gets pregnant very quickly. I think there's a kind of like what you're describing of, of a kind of rootlessness existence as an army brat. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, I guess, how that outsider status informs journalism in a way that seems increasingly less and less, because now most of the journalists all have kind of the same background in a lot of ways. Like you do, there's always the push we hear vocally about um, ethnic diversity or gender diversity, but there's almost no discussion about socioeconomic diversity within it. So that even, even if you are the same ethnicity or gender of the people you're writing about who are really struggling in ways that you've never lived, I wonder, like, like journalism used to be a blue collar job. It's only become an extension of academia and Ivy league academia very, very recently. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder, like, for you, like, when I was, I've been doing all this research into Mexico, I'd like to talk to you a bit about that and and some of the recent massive headlines with American Dirt, which, which I think was, it's fair to say, was positioned to be in publishing, like, the book of the year, uh, seven-figure advance, seven-figure movie deal, Um, but as I'm researching Mexico for what I'm my little thing right now I find it so interesting that Coco the Disney film celebrating the day of the dead makes almost half a billion dollars in a very appealing way for foreign audiences to embrace this thing and the biggest celebration of the day of the dead is in Mexico City as a result of James Bond using it in the opening scene four years ago, which the Mexican government actually funded and subsidized for like $40 million so that they could then use it as a gateway drug into convincing 2 million people to go out there and and celebrate it in a very non-traditional Mexican way. So like, I don't know, I wonder, how do you see your role as somebody who deals so closely with, with the theme of, of immigration, Mexican identity in the United States, uh, one of the most dangerous borders in the world. I mean, right now, Mexico has five out of the six uh, murder capitals of the world, and I think Juarez is number one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this American Dirt thing has just really made me revisit, like, what what is this narrative right now, the current narrative with the discourse of Mexican identity, Mexican-American identity. Where do you see this right now? I know I've thrown far too much into this question. Well, I think, I think, uh, I think part of that is just that it's, it's just so different. Mexican identity from Mexico City to where I'm from, uh, to, to Northern uh, Mexico, to, to, Tijuana is different from, you know, obviously it's all different, but I don't remember, and it's obviously changed a lot. We used to celebrate Day of the Dead, but it was just more of kind of like going to to the graveyard, talking, you know, uh, to, to relatives that's passed, but it was never this huge 
Halloween type of celebration. Right. Uh, and I think what's 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 happened is just that there's a stereotypical Mexican. So it's the Day of the Dead. That's one of the things. Uh, you kind of start seeing it a little bit more with things like tacos all of a sudden. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, but, you know, that's one of the things that if you say Mexican identity, Mexican symbols of Mexicanness, tacos comes up, Day of the Dead. Uh, maybe this is more like uh, Mexican-American, but Selena comes up. And, and the stereotype of what Mexico or Mexican is has become these migrants, right? These, these, these people stuck on this border, kind of like the, the, the book American Dirt. And I think uh, that's, what's, that's what's become the problem. That's, that's that we are many times reduced to, to these symbols, right? And then when, when people are like, well, there's actually more to this. There's actually, you know, not everybody eats this type of taco or this actually isn't, uh, I, I don't want to use the word authentic, although that's what comes to mind because, you know, authenticity is such a, such a tricky word. But, you know, there's, you see this all over the place. So I think kind of going back to this American dirt thing is that, that that's the problem that people see Mexican or, or, or Latinx at this point, Latinos as a certain thing. And we've gone to this point where people are actually writing about their experience and there is a complete clash, right? Between, between this lived experience and what's become the stereotype. So I think part of the problem with, uh, I mean, I haven't read the novel, but I've, I've, I've heard and, and read enough or, or read about it enough that I feel like I understand the criticisms is that she says at the end, I think, uh, that she wishes somebody browner than her had written it, right? And well, she was a quarter Puerto Rican, though, Roberto. I mean, that's pretty brown. That is pretty brown. And, and you know, Puerto Ricans is uh, right up there with uh, living right along the border. So. <laughs> well, have you considered at all, or I should put it this way, why have you considered changing your PhD thesis from exploring Mexican identity through boxing through this new memoir you're embarking on, uh, Rubia, My Life as a Middle-Aged White Woman? It seems that <laughs> it's, it's questionable to me that you have the, the CV to embark on that project, but I think it's bold of you. Well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the second PhD. Yeah. Postdoc. I think uh, so. That's the problem. Getting back to this, that she says she wishes somebody browner than her had written it. <laughs> but you know, people yeah. have written this story, and people have have talked about this for. I mean, people have been writing about Mexican life since this became the United States, and by this I mean the Southwest, and even farther before that, right? And you know, but it's just that uh, people people weren't paying attention, or or the the mechanisms isn't there to to promote the book of somebody who's written it. Somebody like uh, Luis Alberto Rea, who's 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 uh, kind of become part of this uh, American Dirt thing because uh, it seems like she she essentially read all of his work, and that's kind of an inspiration to put it nicely, uh, according to some people. Right. So the, the problem is that that people have been writing these these things. They nobody's been paying attention, or just a certain percentage, a small percentage of people have been paying attention, and nobody certainly has been getting paid the type of money that she's been getting paid, right? And and 
what's happened with that is that all of a sudden you you get this popularity and then that becomes like the dominant the dominant voice and the influential voice right where it seems like uh from everything i've read it is just there's just a lot of simple mistakes that she made that that kind of show that you know she really wasn't she's not writing about uh she seems like she just built on stereotypes and you and it sounds like the way you're framing it is it's much the same criticism that Eminem or Elvis Presley faced with cultural appropriation, right? That once these, or Vanilla Ice, I think Vanilla Ice was referenced in a review that this is much more a kind of Vanilla Ice situation of somebody that when when he embarks on hip hop, he sells 11 million albums or Eminem or Elvis. Not not that I think both of them are quite respected in, in, in a lot of segments of criticism as well, but... Um, that the issue is when a white person does it, there's all like Oprah Winfrey, I believe, was profiting off of her connection to the publishing house that released this book. So it wasn't like she objectively saw the value in this book. And that's why she does the the video, like tailors all this stuff to assist promoting it. She's part of the machinery that is trying to ensure this book's success in a way that voices that, as as you say, much more reasonably would uh, authentically approach this story would not be promoted. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. I think once you're, once you're writing stories like these and you have the entire industry behind you, then just kind of naturally, it feels like you have more authority to speak on what is happening there. You you're essentially co-signed by the entire business, right? Whereas all of these other other writers are, you know, sometimes they have to self-publish. Sometimes it's, you know, they're not printing that many copies that very few people are actually reading this work, right? Whereas uh, this American Dirt, it seems like, like it's going to be all over the place, right? Like just out of curiosity, the other day I checked to see how many copies my library had. And it had like double ditches and they were all checked out and they all had a hold on them. So, wow. you know, it seems like it's going to be months till it's actually available at a library. Well, and even even these like Instagram celeb not just Instagram celebrities but like big movie stars like Selma Hayek and other I think a couple other Mexican American actresses pushed it on Instagram to massive followings and then when they received backlash from the Mexican American community they said, "Oh, well we actually haven't read it yet." So we apologize for like for promoting something that is so offensive to to such a large segment of the demographic they're trying to appeal to in shilling for the product like it's it's it was just fascinating the rollout for this thing yeah and i think i think it, it really well i don't think i know it, it really exposed all of this kind of like mechanisms that you don't really or at least i don't really pay much attention to right i just kind of assume like these people read the book uh, these people have a lot of time on their hands to be promoting and reading the book. Uh, you know, this, uh, however Oprah picks her or her book of the month club or, or, you know, I just thought it was kind of, I thought it was more organic, I guess. You know, I was naive and be like, I guess she just reads a lot of books and, and then just like, this one's good. But, you know, this whole entire thing is just kind of, it just shined a light on on all of this other things that, you know, I'm still not entirely sure how it works, but it doesn't seem to be as as 
clean, for lack of a better word, the uh, uh, the process than than what would think. It sounds really cynical of you to present America not as a meritocracy. I'm kind of shocked <laughs> at the suggestion. Uh, you know, I just I just came to this realization with this book, so I'm I'm, I'm still kind of <laughs> my own shock. We've both lost our innocence. It sounds like we're true Americans, the national pastime. Um, this is what. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say this is this is what that book does to you, even though even if I have, even if you haven't read it, this is what it does. Yeah, I mean the same. They always toss out the same adjective, you know, gutting. It, 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 oh, like every time I read something is gutting, I know I'm just gonna wretch in. Ugh. Um, so I want to I want to get to these articles that you've done because I'm such a big fan of your work. But I just want to one of the things that you sent me when I asked for your biography is you mentioned I thought this was really interesting that the first colleges you went to before where you are now pursuing your PhD um, were very working class kids that you were surrounded with. And then there's this transition with the fellowship you got to a very different group of people. And I would just like to hear about that experience for you. Like you're working in construction for 10 years and then you make this decision to, to have this incredible sea change in your life. I mean, this is not typical for most of the writers that when I asked about their backstory, um, this, this kind of fork in the road, this turn. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, once I decided to go to school, to go to college, uh, I think part of what happened, well, part of what happened is that I met my would-be wife and she was a college educated, college graduate. She's a teacher. So it was like a completely type of different vibe, right? Where you're just kind of used to at least dating people who pretty much like me, you know, barely high school graduates, sometimes not even high school graduates. You just kind of can confined I don't know if confined is the right word but you're, you're just kind of hanging around the same people and once I met my wife uh who would become my wife it was like a different an entirely different vibe and if only just to know the mechanics of applying to to college to applying for filling out a, a financial aid application you know I mean there was no one I could really ask I mean uh I'm sure there was uh counselors and thing and and programs that they had but it, I just never paid attention. It never crossed my mind. And uh, once I once I went to community college, El Paso Community College, I mean, I was 28 years old, but I wasn't the only person there who was kind of older, who was working. At that point, I wasn't working. Uh, but, you know, I was surrounded with all of these students that that sometimes they showed up straight from work. They'd show up in their uniforms or or they'd be ready to go to, to work at that point uh, right after class. UTEP, uh, University of Texas at El Paso, where I transferred to, it was pretty much the same. It's a, it's, it's a working class college. It, it, uh, it admits something like 99% of applicants. And uh, the old president there used to say that she used to do that because that's, that's the only way, maybe not the only way, but that, that was a way of trying to help people who wanted to go to college, right? Uh, people who weren't gonna graduate in four years because they had other obligations, because they had a family, because they had they had to work their way through college. So I was very much surrounded by, by people like me, people who spoke English and Spanish in, in class, you would often 
hear people talking in Spanish. You know, it was no big deal. Sometimes people from Juarez would 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 uh, cross the bridge to go to El Paso, uh, to UTEP, and even uh, community college. So it wasn't until I I left there I, I applied for a PhD fellowship and uh, received it for SMU Southern Methodist University in Dallas that I arrived here and it was a completely different world. I mean, it was SMU is in in one of the richest zip codes probably in all the country, definitely in Texas. It's in University Park. I think Jerry Jones has a house there. You know, that's how that's the type of the type of money that's there. And, mm. and, you know, I was, you know, in El Paso, I was the people who had money. It was like, they had a nice car. They lived in a nicer neighborhood. You know, they could, they could go to the movies much more often. That's a type of wealth, I guess, uh, that I was used to seeing. Once I get out here, it's like multi-million dollar homes just across the campus, uh, fountains and all of these, uh, the student parking lot had, uh, Maseratis, and all of these cars that were more expensive than houses uh, where I came from. And it was a completely different world for me. It was just, you know, one of those things that I had to struggle. And I think in a certain way, I was isolated a bit because, uh, because I was going to graduate school. So most of the graduate students were kind of, they weren't rich. Uh, so there were more, more, I could relate to them more. Right. They, but, uh, I think had I gone to uh, to undergraduate uh, at SMU, I think I would have felt it more. I, I feel I would have been, I would have felt more isolated than I than I actually felt, just because you're interacting with with these students nonstop. Let me uh, tell you a story. Uh, I taught a uh, semester, and we got back from spring break, and just out of you know courtesy, curiosity, making making talk, I asked them, so uh, how was your spring semester? Uh, how was your spring break? And some kid went to the Bahamas over the spring break, right? And I was, and he said it so like, uh, like it was nothing. It was kind of like, I don't know. I, th I think that's that's where I've, where I started to, uh, it became clear at that point, right? Where I had already noticed it. Once I actually got around the, the undergraduate kids, then you really notice you know, all of these people have, these people have like money that I can't even fathom, right? It's a weird thing though, like you're, you're bringing back some memories for me. When my parents split up, my dad went into like a, a bad section of town and my mother stayed in, in a reasonably nice neighborhood. And yet it was, I don't remember exactly the age, I'm guessing around seven or eight where kids start asking other kids, like, do your parents own your house or do you rent? And that became like a real distinguishing characteristic about your identity. And I really had this odd sense, like in both homes, that like I was in the west side of town that had money, but I was the only renter on the block. And when I was in the poor side of town, my dad was the only person who was like a lawyer, like everybody else's job was blue collar and they were physically damaging themselves with their line of work. Like remember my dad saying like, you could tell when you moved into a, a socioeconomically distressed neighborhood because everywhere you look, people are limping. You can just a, you can see their laundry and B you can see people physically straining to move around in a way that does not exist where there's money. And I don't know, it's just odd to not fit in in either neighborhood. And yet 
be around both people, living with both groups at the same time. Like it's a very odd sensation to be like at once in it, but but outside of it. Like I don't know, kind of window shopping in both realities and to a certain extent. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Where where I would feel like an outsider here in in, in SMU and and especially I was living close to campus, so we're living in apartments. And that that was very much a kind of uh, it wasn't affluent, but it was it was a it was a pretty good part of town. And uh, you know, once you're feeling like an outsider there, just because you're surrounded by people you're unfamiliar with, and then once I would go back to El Paso for for the summer or to visit, you know, you also realize that you're also you're also not. You've also moved away from your construction worker roots, right? You try to hang out with people you knew while working construction, and and, and you're just different, right? You're you've kind of lost that connection that you once had, and and it's 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 pretty jarring sometimes, and sometimes it's just kind of, I mean, you just kind of deal with it, right? I mean, because what else can you do? Did you did you in any way? I think one of the more insidious things culturally that's inflicted in kids that that grow up without a lot of privilege is there a sense or were you made to feel a sense of kind of selling out by wanting to pursue academia and where like what doors would open as a result of academia at all was that part of your journey uh no i i wasn't made to feel that way but you you definitely notice it, right? You I mean nobody ever made fun of me for reading a book. Nobody, you know that that kind of like stereotype where where I was picked on because I was the smart kid or whatever. That that never happened to me. But I I do remember uh, right after I stopped right after I stopped working construction, I was I was in, in in community college my first semester. I did meet just randomly some guy that I used to work with, uh, and he's like, hey man, what what are you doing? You know you. I haven't seen you around. I go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm at community college right now. He's like, oh, what are you majoring in? And I go, I was philosophy, which, which, what I also majored in. And uh, he just looked at me and he goes, so what do you do all day? You just get high and think. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it was just kind of like you, right? Yeah. And I was, I mean, that was, that was um, at that point. I was like, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what I do. You know, it's, it's just, it's just kind of, <laughs> it's just kind of hard to to explain what you do to people who really don't know what you do when you're trying to figure your own self out like what am i doing here you know what i mean it it, it does feel i mean i don't it, yeah you're just kind of in this weird place where you're nobody's making fun of you nobody thinks you're a sellout at least not in my case but you knew you do notice it's it's different you do notice that you've changed and and the type of things that you do slowly change and, and, and the type of, even the way you think changes, right? Uh, and you start to see how it sometimes clashes with how you were raised, sometimes clashes with, with how your family members still think. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's that, that abrupt, there's that kind of like constant tension and sometimes it just abruptly shows up and you're like, oh, that's right, this is, this is a different place. Well, and just where where status and division is so paramount also. I mean, Abraham Lincoln didn't go to law school, but I think everybody agrees he was a pretty good lawyer. <laughs> like like now you can't do these things without jumping through these hoops. They 
they exist with a huge amount of force to promote their own utility, their own importance, their own, you know, that you can't avoid us. You can't exist outside of this system. And I don't know, those distinctions have always intrigued me that you're just seeing less and less and less sort of quote unquote outsiders permitted entry. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like it's, it, yeah. it is, it, it, I don't know, like it, it's just interested me as I've like listening to the long form podcast, for example, you've got hundreds of journalists there that are very successful, powerful voices. Um, but they are not talking about student loans that they were dealing with because most of them never had to deal with them. And it's just like, that's, I've had people, I've listened to them criticize some stories saying they're not reported enough. And it's like, are you aware that not everybody has like is making six figures doing journalism and also has an expense budget? Like right. they, they're not they're not able to report on those stories the way you could and would take for granted that you could. So I, I don't know. It's it's um Yeah, I, I, well one one yeah. of the first major things that I ever wrote was for Deadspin. It was about uh Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. losing to to Canelo, and I kind of laid out this backstory of 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 their connection to De La Hoya and and Julio Cesar Chavez and uh I mean I I was very proud of that that story and and I think it's really good I think obviously I would do things different but I emailed that story to to a pretty famous writer uh I don't want to mention his name but and he responded to me and he, he liked it but he also one of his criticism was that uh I didn't report enough I should have talked to De La Hoya and uh and Chavez right and this guy works for ESPN so it was, that was that was just one of those things where it's like, oh, that's right. This is this is like, this is one of those differences where where you're just kind of, I mean, people just know their own world, right? So it's almost right. It's almost just you're almost caught up in your own your own thing. That obviously to to somebody to him it would be like, well, this is has a huge gap because you actually didn't spend time with De La Hoya. Or uh, or or a week in 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 Culiacan with Chavez, right? And and I just I just want to say I, I can't do that. What what are you talking about? Well, it's funny. I I went to visit a friend who's a, a Harvard Neiman fellow, and I was it was the first time I'd ever been on Harvard's campus before, and it was exactly what you would expect a place where one in five student freshmen are legacy students. It was people who own the world. That was the attitude of it. It wasn't people, I didn't get this. It's not like MIT's campus where it feels like some Harry Potter wizard academy of, of wild geniuses. And not to say that Harvard doesn't have extraordinarily talented people, but the predominant feeling was that it was like a tourist attraction of just seeing how this group lives. That the right. expectation was from birth, this is owed to you. And I, I don't know that I'd ever been around that really in like in the United States. Uh, like it's different in England where you're bumping into people who are like sixth generation Cambridge or Oxford. But the U.S. being such a, a relatively new country, it was just odd. Like everybody walking around felt like walking italics. Like there was just something weird about the energy and even the Neiman Fellowship thing was like probably the best cup of wine I've ever had in my life. And it was just served to them 
<laughs> like just just to have a little meeting. Of course, it's catered with like a massive staff that's like bigger than anything I've seen at an event I've covered. It was just very, very heady, unusual kind of atmosphere. Oh, it's yeah. It's, I mean, one of the things that that when I first got on SMU campus was just seeing how green it was and the landscape and how perfect everything looked, right? And and how they're what the sprinklers set to the point that even when it's raining out, they're still going. Uh, and all of these big tent setups for homecoming that must cost tens of thousands of dollars at least. And and just just being around students that you know, one of the things that I realized with this that made sense to me was, oh, these are the kids that the kids that get told that they're gonna be president, these are the kids that actually kind of believe it. Yeah. Or you up to be anything you could be president these are the kids that that believe it because i mean that's that's just the way it is that's just the way you're raised right and and i was kind of used to to being told that and you're just kind of like you know this is just some more bullshit to to keep us from to keep us doing our homework kind of thing yeah well it's very easy to to disqualify yourself like disqualify yourself from certain passports to being who you want to be I mean, it's one of the, I mean, let's shift over to where, I mean, you, you mentioned Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., but where boxing got your attention, because boxing just seems to exist in this amazing nexus of themes about not just America, but immigrants, politics, money, capitalism, uh, extreme poverty, extreme wealth, um, like, I don't know, like how it, it's this whirlpool of the culture that even as niche as it is now it still has these divine accidents that just bring in people like basically nothing else does like not even the super bowl or an award ceremony so i i wonder like what for you like i it sounds like from from the way you've written about boxing boxing's always been on your radar but what made you want to pursue it the way you have as the focus of your phd and and also your work well, um, I mean, yeah, as far as I can remember, boxing was always there for, it was always a part of my life My for a, for a few years or a few weeks, probably. My my dad tried to turn uh, my uncle into a boxer just because he would always get into these street fights and he, he figured he might as well try to uh, make something out of it. But, you know, the, obviously that that only works if you have, uh, if you have discipline, which he didn't. So, but I mean, boxing's always been there. And once I got here to to uh, to grad school, I just I had no I had no idea what I wanted to study. I, I I had some vague interest, and I still have a lot of interest in the Mexican Revolution, but I had no real thing to write about uh, so far as that. And I just kept talking to one of my uh, one of my professors, and he just kept noticing that every. I would bring up boxing, I guess, every time we talked. And he's like, just, just write about boxing. And up until that point, I, I mean, I, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know that was an option, right? It just seemed, it seemed unacademic, I guess, you know, because it was almost like two sides of, of, of my life. One was this side where I would read books and, and do all this other bullshit that, that had to do with academia. And then when I was away from there, I'd, I'd watch boxing. That's, that was kind of like my, <laughs> My thing, you know, sometimes I'd watch YouTube videos at night. So just old boxing things, old boxing fights. And then uh, once I found out that I could kind of merge this, then then I started bringing into 
questioning all of these these things that I've had long wrestled with, you know, identity, as you say, uh, through through Mexican boxing, things like assimilation, like class, machismo is a huge thing. And just just trying to delve into it and trying to trying to focus on what it means to be Mexican through an entirely working class sport such as boxing. You, before this, these, these questions of what it means to be Mexican, this was just kind of like the work of all of these uh, upper class Mexican philosophers, right? These people who went to UNAM, the, the, the Mexican university, University of Mexico in Mexico City. Uh, yeah. You know, these, these are like intellectual pursuits of what it means to be Mexican. And it was always, you know, all of these philosophical things. And I, I, never, I, I always felt like you could tell much more, maybe not you could tell, but part of the conversation I felt was missing was like the working class people. You know, if, 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 if I go to these, these, uh, these Mexican barrios across, across the United States, you know, they have ideas of what it means to be Mexican, but it's almost like they're shut out of that conversation, right? Because, because because they're they're laborers, because they're electricians, because they're boxers, or because they want to be boxers and and they they'll never make it. So that's that's how I started, and uh, they let me write about it, and I did. Well, so it's so interesting because I think you're absolutely right. I think some of the core truths for anything, especially identity, are not at the center, but at the fringes, are where the really interesting details and questions arise. Like I um. I was working on an article with Glenn Stout for SB Nation where we were going to do Jose Tomas from Spain, the world's best bullfighter, was coming into Mexico City to the biggest bull ring on earth to compete. And it almost instantly all the tickets sell out. But there was a massive amount of protest for Tomas coming, largely on a colonial basis of complaint, which I thought was so interesting, and also animal rights. So I interviewed one of the biggest animal rights advocates in Mexico City, and I just thought, isn't this interesting where every kiosk on the streets in Mexico City has the nota roja of, of like faces of death of children and women and, and the narco murders and decapitations, all for kids to see, but killing bulls is morally reprehensible. It was Or El Chapo at that time, this is four years ago, everywhere paraded around as like a cult hero on posters and yet a matador is the symbol of spain like i'm not saying it told the whole story but it told it just raised really interesting questions about a place where when cortez came over to mexico city uh there were 20,000 people who were executed in tenochtitlan like like and then it's animal protests like i it was just like what a fascinating uh, bizarre, all these contradictions that are raised from this accident of like a fucking bullfighter coming in for one day, who's going to make $3 million or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I th I actually just this past Sunday, I was thinking of in terms of contradictions here locally in Texas, you cannot buy alcohol be before noon on Sunday. And, uh, but yeah, you could carry a weapon into try to buy alcohol. Right. So it's these these weird contradictions of of it's absurd, right? When once you actually step back and you start thinking about it, well, you know that doesn't make any sense. So yeah, that that's that's 
I'm entirely with you there. You just you just kind of notice these these absurdities in 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 certain things, and sometimes you sometimes you see it a lot in boxing. Well, and yeah, with boxing, I mean, I was looking at a quote because I mean, I'm trying to. Mexico's relationship with death just seems to permeate. I mean, this this writer that I'm profiling right now, DVC Pierre, and I, I had him on the the podcast had this observation that in Mexico City, and and he's not basing this entirely as a, a visitor, he's somebody who spent 20 years of his life in Mexico City and adores it, um, but said, there's nowhere on earth where blood has a higher currency than Mexico. And he actually was showing me where they would get children to, to this was like in the, the main temple um, in the center of Mexico City, get a get a baby to cry and use the tears to try to elicit rain before the child was sacrificed and stuff. Um, there was such a where where in this country and like Western culture in general, there's such a profound denial. Like even in our language of death, like nobody dies, they pass away, and it's all these euphemisms. To me, it just seems so much more honest to look at this thing. And I mean, even bullfighting for me was that too. It's just, you're looking at something that is true. It's an unpleasant truth. It's an inconvenient truth, you know, how we confront death. But it, it seems like a pretty fucking important thing, even right. though it's disturbing and troubling and makes you question things. Um, but I wonder, like, if you could speak to, in profiling, like, I mean, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., what a fascinating character because anything he does is, is invariably going to be framed in, in reference to his dad. You have the ultimate Mexican fighter versus the epitome of the privileged, protected, coddled son. Like, right. I wonder if you could speak to some of that, like from your profiles about him. Well, I mean, like you, I find him, I, I find him an entirely fascinating figure just because like you lay out and at best it seems like he's just going to be a decent copy of his dad and at worst he's going to be like a an affront to what it means to be mexican you know that seems to be kind of like the two things that he's kind of straddling about and i mean i just i i just find him interesting because his dad is like this symbol of Mexican machismo, possibly, I would argue, the most powerful symbol of Mexican machismo in the last 50 years, probably this side of Charros, these 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 horsemen in, in, in Mexico. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, you grow up with a Mexican father and, and you know, you kind of feel it sometimes, right? You're sometimes even little comments. Uh, you know, I think everybody kind of has whatever issues they have with their fathers, but it's... I mean, I'm just speaking from experience here. I, I think it, it, it's it's a different type of thing if you're Mexican. Now, aren't, if you're, aren't Char if you're, I'm interrupt. Aren't Charles legally allowed to carry around a gun? Uh, I'm not sure, to to be quite honest. I know they used to. I'm not sure if they, they still are or not. Somebody but, told I mean, me they were they were, they were they were just part of a political a political system. It was an entire system called Charismo is based on Charles, right? It's kind of like patriarchs of of ranchos or out of these rural areas and you know that they exude machismo 
but well, they're, uh, they're like fucking Toshiro Mifune samurais as well. Like they're like the coolest people I've ever heard of. I, somebody told me maybe it's all apocryphal, but a story about them that I mean, it took a long time for for Mexican law to in any way restrain them because they were so in awe of what they represented. Right, and and you see this in, I mean, this gets played up in the music, right? A lot of these like singing charro characters, uh, these kind of like hard loving, hard drinking people, uh, not people, men, macho men, uh, who who exude charisma, who exude once again machismo, and and they're just like this symbol of what a Mexican man should be, essentially, right? And I see I see Chavez in certain ways, and, and perhaps I'm biased, and because I've, I've I've written so much about this and read about this so much that, I mean, Chavez is is a specific type of Mexican man that he's situated in the kind of 80s he picks up in the 90s, where there's a huge demographic change in the United States at that point where Mexican immigrants are coming in, right? And the type of Mexican immigrants that are coming in, they're essentially laborers for the most part, right? These, these, uh, so there's a historic ideal stereotype of what a Mexican laborer, a man is. And essentially it's kind of like this docile type of worker that you kind of want around because they're not gonna aggravate. They're not gonna fight for their own freedoms. They're easy to feed because they survive off of fucking beans and tortillas. So you could actually underpay them. You know, this is the whole, the whole bracero system where uh, in the forties up until the sixties, the Mexican government's essentially exporting their own workers to, to the United States to work. Well, and, and this is this is something, by the way, I don't know if you listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast about this circular migration, but it's so interesting. One of his big conclusions from that is like the main guy who prosecuted uh, making it extraordinary, like all this border issue obsession that America has now was some Vietnam general who did a wonderful job in Vietnam, obviously, with how well that turned out, but took over. And the conclusion was that if we had not spent $1 on preventing Mexicans from coming in from like 1970 onward, we would have a net minus 30% Mexicans currently living uh, undocumented in the U.S. With not having spent $1 as a result of just circular migration, that there were all these people just wanted to work and come home. But if you make it difficult, they have to bring their families over. They have to stay. It was fascinating. Yeah, well, I had I have not heard that. I'll, I'll look out for it. But yeah, that's that's essentially what what the stereotype of the Mexican worker is. They're just here to do seasonal work, and then they're back home, right? And then they'll come back and and pick strawberries, and then they'll move on to to whatever else is in season, and then they'll go back. It's usually the dream was always to collect enough money so you could kind of go back home and take care of your family, build a home, uh, you know, kind of uh, have a nice car. Obviously, that's that's all changed to a certain extent, but kind of getting back to Chavez in the late 80s, in the early 90s, you know, when you're kind of this this Mexican laborer that you you're just here to work, you're here not to raise an uproar. And this is obviously this isn't the same for everyone. There's a lot of Mexicans that actually did fight for their civil rights. But for the most part, it, it seemed like you were just here to work and that was it. And then along comes Chavez who's entirely relatable so far as physically. I mean, this isn't, this isn't Klitschko six foot eight or whatever, 250 pounds. Chavez is what, five, six, 140 pounds. 
Yeah. And he's like this vicious fucking guy inside the ring, and he's arguably the world's best boxer for about a four four year span. And you know, you you kind of take pride in that. And I think that's where when we were living in Germany, I mean, uh, we would watch fights of Chavez and and they were on delay. People would send us uh videotapes and all of our Mexican friends, we would just kind of hang out, even though we knew knew the uh the result. We just watch him because Chavez meant something, right? Chavez, I mean he, he he gave you pride of being Mexican and not just being Mexican, but being just kind of, yeah, I guess being Mexican for, for, and, and everything that that meant, right. And being working class Mexican, this guy who, who began fighting for as little as I think $6 a fight and just right. kind of work himself up and you saw him and, and you realize that, you know, we kind of, he fought all the way up. He wasn't, he was never protected. Maybe later on in his career. Well, not maybe. He was later on in his career, but he got to the point that he essentially did it by himself. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of Mexicans uh, kind of uh, connected with that. And then you have his son that comes up, and he's the entirely opposite person, where he's one hundred percent protected, <laughs> and he's like profiting off of his dad's name. And not only, I mean, it's one thing to 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 fight under your dad's name because that makes sense but it's like he's wasting all of his opportunities and whatever talent he had it just it just seems to have just gone he made nothing of it it seems like at least that's that's the perspective i get well and and like do you think that canelo is the first like i mean chavez was obviously legendary in boxing but canelo took it to another level that i mean there's all of this talk. I mean, the documentaries and the coverage of Oscar de la Hoya, that there was a lot of ambivalence that Mexico seemed to have in seeing themselves through his story. Whereas Canelo, like Puerto Rican fighters who don't learn English, like, do you feel like there's, is Canelo, like, has the baton been passed to Canelo from Julio Cesar Chavez in your view? I think it has, but I think also, it's almost like passing the baton from Michael Jordan to LeBron James, where people realize he's the best boxer. The speaking of Canelo, of course, he's the best boxer that Mexico has produced in a while, but he's still close enough to the shadow of Chavez that it's almost like he can, he cannot win. Right. Unless he, he fights the way Chavez fights. And maybe this is changing a little bit, but, uh, but he's always going to draw criticism. I think at this point, Canelo's gotten to the point where you either like him and you know you're going to defend him or no matter what he does, you're going to be critical of him, that he fought uh, Kovalev too late or that he arguably lost to, to, to Golovkin or that he was handed some very close decisions against Cotto, against, against Lara, against the Trout. So I think at this point... Uh, even though people recognize that he is the best boxer since Chavez, I think there's he's still in the shadow of Chavez, and and I mean he's just I think I think he's always going to be judged against Chavez, right? Yeah, in a way that it's interesting because I mean De La Hoya was the face of boxing in his time, like kind of right after Tyson, De La Hoya assumes that mantle, but lost kind of all of his biggest fights 
it seems to me, whereas Canelo uh, really seems like kind of an overachiever from where he was like right around the time of losing to Mayweather when he was so young. I don't know that anybody expected he'd have a run like this, both uh, fights that are memorable, unlike a lot of like ladder Mayweather where he's making all that money, but nobody's watching those fights at the end. They're not fun fights to watch. Um, Canelo has had like been pretty electric for the last five, six years since the Mayweather fight. Yeah, I think at least speaking personally, I did, I did not expect him to be this good, I guess. I think he's like, like you said, he's overachieved. And I think you always, you kind of gain a better perspective to how, or a better appreciation to how good he is and not just good, but how disciplined he is. When you see other boxers, Andy Reese, perfect example. You see other boxers who, who essentially just have, have, it's, they have a, an amazing opportunity to to become this transcendent figure, or or at least to be this important boxer, and because they have no discipline, they can't. Right. Whereas Canelo, it just seems that no matter what he does, whether he's He's riding multi-million dollar cars, whether he's vacationing and meeting the Pope. He's always in shape. He's, he's, he's always, he seems to really enjoy boxing, right? And being in the gym. And I think that's, that's one of the things that's, that's helped him overachieve, right? That he keeps working on, on his craft and that he keeps working on, on his discipline and, and whatever other issues he may have. I mean, I'm talking about the, the failed drug test here. He, he's always committed. He's always a good boxer. He's always there to fight. And I think that's, I think actually Canelo is going to be a lot better appreciated by, by Mexican fan bases as far as what he means to Mexican boxing. Uh, probably after he, he retires, I think once again, it's too soon. And he's, he's kind of in the, uh, in the shadow of, of Chavez right now. Well, what did you make of Andy Ruiz? I mean, I, I was there. I couldn't believe what happened with Joshua, you know, sitting there. And I mean, at press row, we were all shocked. I don't know that we should have been. He had this great amateur record and Joshua, you know, yeah, he's a gold medalist out of the Olympics. I thought Felix Sabone's nephew beat him pretty convincingly. So, I mean, I think there was some padding to where he was at in the boxing world, but he certainly looked the part of sort of, you know, the Greek god heavyweight champion he looked like a heavyweight champion but to be beaten by somebody who appeared to be so slovenly and uninvested and even staying in shape uh where rumors were abounding that he's bragging to bob arum about all he wants to do is is get high on weed and and sleep with hookers and that kind of thing um what did you make of that event putting a mexican-american on every talk show, like getting unbelievable exposure, Snickers is is fucking advertising using him as a spokesman, and then it's all gone. Like he becomes just the cliche that Buster Douglas was, and a lot of other people who were undisciplined, where this freakish victory happens, and then they kind of go right back to where they came from. It seemed. I mean, uh, the night he won. Man, I, I was I was so excited. I was I was jumping up and down in my living room. Uh, and then when he lost, it was it was 
it was a great disappointment, to be honest, uh, sports related, obviously, you know, in perspective. But I, I just couldn't believe that that. I mean, it, it all started in a way and obviously, but it was just one of those things where it was like, well, you know, he's never been in great shape. Uh, you know, you, you, you almost talk yourself into this bullshit that that, well, maybe it's going to be all right. But after that first round, I was like, oh, no, this is fucked up. Uh, this is <laughs> right. This is this yeah. is. It just became like offensive after a while. It was like, man, this guy fucking just wasted this opportunity, and and what he meant to to a lot of people. Uh, I just that was like a great sports disappointment that 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 I felt that that day that December seventh or, or whatever ninth seventh that it was it was, I mean it was hard to uh, to watch and it was hard to to reconcile who what he meant and and. And I don't know, you, you start, at least me personally, I started thinking like, wow, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of this. He's, I mean, would I have treated this any better? You know, there's a part of me that, that thinks just Andy Reese is just like many of us, right? There's, I mean, I'm not sure how motivated I would be if all of a sudden I have all of these things that I've been fighting so hard to, to win apparently uh right before he fought reese uh joshua he was getting paid uh twenty thousand dollars a fight so all of a sudden to go from that to become this millionaire and having everything else multi-millionaire once you account for for the uh for the rematch i don't know there, there's a part of me that that just sees reese as as this kind of like tragic figure in a sense and and i'm curious to see if we ever see him fight again and under what circumstances we see him fight. There's a part of me that thinks the next time we see Reese fight is after he has had to have lost a hundred pounds and he's broke, which I hope doesn't happen. I hope he's entirely happy and whatever he does and he keeps his money and he actually does change the future of his, of his, of his family. But you know, we, we've seen enough boxing that that's generally not how it goes. Yeah, I think it's almost it never goes that way. No, it's I've brought it up a few times like it's it's kind of Andre Ward and, and that's about it as far as boxers I've met who brag about the money they've saved. Basically right. everybody else it's bragging about all the money that they've spent. And then they lose it very quickly to the shock and astonishment of everybody. How did they lose it? Um no, I I mean I couldn't believe with Andy Ruiz, I mean, even my own naivete, I called up Buster Douglas and Michael Bent, who both had, you know, big upsets. And then they just couldn't get into the same headspace to defend what they'd won, to defend their place, to show that it wasn't a fluke and all of that. Um, And both of them were so adamant. Andy Ruiz is going to just destroy him in the rematch. Like they were so convinced that, that he would never make the same mistakes that they did. And yet, like it was kind of almost more embarrassing. I thought like to come in the way he did. And the moment that the fight was over to hear Ruiz saying, you know, give me another chance. Give me another chance. It was just like a gambler at like a blackjack table. Who's lost everything. Right. Just trying to beg anybody, just give me some money. Like I'll, I'll, it's going to happen. And I just thought, what if it never happens again? And I guess you just can't appreciate that until you've lost it. Or just, I, I don't know how to instill that to somebody who doesn't, who's living it. I just don't know. 
I don't know what advice you could offer that would would have assisted him to take it more seriously. Hey, this this incredible moment you had is not the beginning of a story. It's probably the end unless you work even harder next time. And he did the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, once again, it was just so. Yeah, as you said, though the the everything that happened after the fight and that day or two after the fight, I think that's what made it for me worse. Right, that it went from this feel good story to even even my grandmother, my mother who doesn't watch much boxing, she knows who Andy Reese is all of a sudden. You know, all through June, people are talking about El Gordito, El Gordito, right? The kind of like the little fat boy in Spanish. Sure, he just he just becomes this this figure, this like the underdog, right? This underdog kid who who made who made it, and and that fight and everything. Uh, the few days that came after, it was just, yeah, it was just a complete letdown. It was a disappointment. I don't think that you should disown your grandmother, though, for fat shaming him. I think it's time to take her back and, <laughs> you know, let her back into the family, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, she was right after all, so <laughs> back in. <laughs> um, well... I'd love to do this again with you sometime, but I, I'm really glad that we uh, we finally had a, ch a chance to chat. And um, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, Roberto. Oh, no problem, Brent. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor, is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening. <laughs>